While the last episode primarily covered pre-production, we're not quite done with that yet. It may be easy at this point to think the podcast will only be highlighting the script issues and not focusing on the, the highlights. It can definitely feel that way as much of the crew has a story to tell about the unfinished script. For me, this is all the foundation of appreciating Jurassic Park 3. The more people I spoke to, the more I realized that all the challenges faced by the crew, it's remarkable the film turned out so well. But of course, this is just my opinion. My name is Artist Robinson. I was the first assistant director on the film. And uh, my job is basically to combine all the elements of the script with the production and the creative sides uh, to achieve the outcome of a nice movie. Artist, you've worked on a handful of other big budget films. What was different about this film in particular? You know, I just remember when I got hired, you know, normally they give me a script whether it be a rough script or not, but they give me a script and 99% of the time, it's about 25 or 30 pages too long. Yeah. Right, on pretty much any script you get. And so, but you have to whittle it down and schedule it all up so they can look at it and see, you know, how to make adjustments to trim it up or whatever they need. Um, on this particular movie, there was no script. So they gave me like a four page beat sheet of what, just one line, this would happen, then that could happen, and then this might happen, and then they would do this, and then it could be this, and then it could be that, and asked me to give them an idea of how many days it would take to make it. So I said, well, I don't, it's not a script, so how to, you know, because being used to taking a script, I can take it and pretty much schedule it, break it down, and give you, a, within two or three days, a rough idea of what it might take, but to not have a script, and they just said to me, well, use my imagination, so, I went and broke it all down and used my imagination. I came back and said, well, it'll be this many days to film it. And, and they said, well, it can't be that many days, you know, because they weren't ex expecting to pay that much money, you know? And I said, they said, well, how did you come up with that? And I said, well, I used my imagination, you told me. So when it was all said and done, I think I was three days off. Shelly, we know pre-production went on a five week break, so the script could be finished. What did that mean for you? And like, what were you working on during that time? They told me, okay, we're just gonna shut down prep and they're gonna, they've got the, uh, the writers, you know, they're gonna do a pass on the script and they're gonna do it in a month. And I think they paid them like a million dollars to do this draft for a month. And they were gonna shut down for that month. So they were gonna just put the brakes on everything for a month. And, and allow this script draft to be finished. But the art department is going to keep working. So as long as the art department was there, I wanted to be there too. Once the break began, what are you doing as production designer? Well, you know, I, what am I going to build? Ed Burrow says, well, you know, well, we need, we know we need a jungle. And so we went through that process. We, we need the jungle and we've got, we got, we're going to build it on stage 15 or whatever the f was. I don't know. I don't recall. So build it, build this, you know, do the, do all of that stuff. So, and, and every department had something that they needed to work on. So they worked on that for, for five weeks. I told Kathleen Kennedy, I said, look, we need to keep some people going because if we, if we just stop and everybody, you know, gets laid off, basically, they're all going to take other jobs. I won't be able to guarantee that we'll be have anybody to come back to work on this show. So she was, uh, you know, um, willing to go ahead and let us keep a, a kind of a skeleton crew on and also keep a skeleton construction crew working on stage 12. So we were able to keep that going. 
Gabriel, you've storyboarded quite a few films over the last decade. How was this experience different? I would say that the um, that it was an uncommon experience, and that I it, it felt a little more adrift than a lot of the other you know than other films, and it didn't uh, it. It, you know, it may have actually been, you know, it's it's kind of a cliche that you wouldn't, that you don't really have a script that, that you know, they're trying to pull things together. But this was a little bit more extreme a version of that, oddly, uh, than, you know, than a lot of the other films that I've worked on. There have certainly been films that, uh, where the script was completely in flux the entire time. I worked on it all the way through shooting. I was, you know, uh, and, and very involved, but, um, the way that this that this experience was atypical was just that so much of the time that I worked on it was felt like kind of a holding pattern more than it felt like we were doing exploratory stuff that really ended up in the movie. Doug, you were the art director on the film. When you have a script that is still being worked on weeks before production begins and things basically just, you know, suddenly come to a stop for most of the crew, what were you able to continue working on? you know, in kind of spitballing and waiting on a new script, it gave us an opportunity, everyone an opportunity to kind of say, Hey, what if, um, and, uh, so that, as I said, a few of us put in something more formal than others, but that happens in, in, uh, film a fair amount where some creative teams, um, there's that, there's that latitude to participate in that way. And, and I think because the art department has uh, kind of a, first of all, we start early in the process. So we've got a team of people who are on the ground and in the creative uh, space early on in a project. Um, and the first ones to sort of delve into the script. So if there are gaps in the story, sometimes it's presented to us to say, hey, what what can we do? I, I think of, uh, you know, the, the, the playground we can create or the story we can tell. Um, you know, within our budgetary and time and, and other limitations. So, My name is Brenda Watchell, and I was the script supervisor on Jurassic Park 3. I'm kind of an, a liaison for between the director and editorial, including camera and sound also. The last stop to make sure everything cuts together from a visual level and sound level. So that means like, does the shot cut with that shot? Is there a shot missing? Or uh, is every line covered? Is the director's, have we sufficiently covered the scene? Your responsibilities for the film, at least early on, must have been pretty challenging. In this case, were you given a script and then constantly receiving new pages? I'm given a script from the moment I, before I interview usually. In this particular instance, that's not necessary because I'd worked with Joe before, so I wasn't interviewing. So the minute there was a script, I was a production script. I was given it. I think there was one or two or three, you know, versions, not drastic version changes, but, you know, like rewrites of this and that. And it was being, you know, told like, we're not going to really shoot that, but there's this element that it was a combination of a lot of, a lot of different, um, story elements that were then kind of decided upon from there was a diff, bunch of different writer groups involved in this. And before we started shooting in Hawaii, there was a lot of talk that there wasn't a script. It was basically there was an outline. There were new writers that had been hired and 
certain scenes that we knew we could shoot based on knowing that it wasn't going to affect what was being changed. During the five-week break, do you know what Jim Taylor and Alexander Payne were working on, like, specifically? I feel like what they were working on was relationships in the story, not the dinosaur adventure part and chase part, but more of the relationships of the characters and their reasons why to make it a more compelling story. I think that's where the changes were happening. Hearing your job description, the constantly changing script must have been extremely you know, stressful in some ways. Hearing that there was never a fully completed script, what was that like for you? I remember at the time it was very frustrating for me, you know, as a script supervisor, because you're used to having, knowing what's going to happen next and what happens before. And I don't think that I, I think I had a, a kind of sense of it and I was told, oh, don't worry about it. But I didn't have a, a definitive piece of paper that everyone had agreed with was the scene before and the scene after for some of it, you know. As production manager, I can only imagine that you had a lot of people coming up to you with a thousand different questions about what was going on. A lot of my job was, was uh, hand-holding and saying, okay, well, what can you do? What, 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 you know, we have a certain amount of, we have this money, we, we want, let's get through what we can and, and put off what, and we'll figure it out later on. We're going to get a script. I think it was going to be the 1st of August or something like that. Spoiler alert. We got the final shooting script, what they call shooting script, a day or two before shooting, before shooting started. We were always a little bit spinning our wheels and we'd go and pitch some stuff to him and he'd go, yeah, you know, this is pretty good. We're not really sure where we're going to go, <laughs> what we're going to do. Uh, and uh, eventually the, uh, eventually after the draft came in, that was the Alexander Payne draft, uh, that's when, um, uh, it, that's when things kind of coalesced and the, and you know, the work was a bit more serious, but they were like almost shooting the movie at that point. That draft was, was really good. I don't think they ever made it. They, they, they kept turning in pages after that draft, but they never got to an ending. They never really got to an ending. So the ending, what they did was, I think they brought back one of the original writers to come and, and do the ending because <laughs> they could never crack the ending either. But that was... That was probably the scariest moment for me because I didn't know if the whole thing was going to go down or if, if uh, you know, what, what was going to happen with it. But the, um, you know, when I saw that script come in, it suddenly, um, it was like a whole new light was shed on the project and, it, and it, uh, it all started to make sense from a storytelling standpoint. But they're the ones that came up with a lot of the Kirby story and a lot of the mercenaries that they hired to, to bring them in and... And that, that, that all came from this draft, and, and a lot of uh, Trevor's story came from that, um, the story of what they were even doing on the island in the first place, and the fact that the parents were there looking for the child. That, that all came from that story. And then the script started to make sense a lot. Um, uh, they, they were always going to be there looking for a kid, but they didn't really know... Um, you know, what the circumstances were that put them there. And, and it was that draft that sort of solidified all that. And when, once we all read that draft, um, the the film kind of had started to take on its humorous moments. It didn't take itself too seriously. Um, and it started to have that kind of, that human depth to it, which we were all kind of craving at that point, at least for the first half of it. 
Robert Dalva, editor of JP3, has a long history in film dating back to Star Wars A New Hope. He also edited a few of Joe Johnson's other films, including Jumanji, October Sky, and Captain America. He was actually the very first person I interviewed for this podcast way back in the spring of 2018. So again, apologies for the audio. Robert, when did you first get involved with Jurassic Park 3? I would say it was at least a year before we started shooting. I got a script from Joe. I read it and I called him back and said, really going to do this? You know, it's pretty bad. And he said, well, we're, we're working on it. And, you know, so I, in fact, took another job. That was when I thought I would be cutting Jurassic Park 3. And then he sent me another script, which is essentially the script that, that we know as the movie. And I just, it was so much better. They, they did the right thing. The boat moves along the coast of Sorna. Waves, jungle, stunning visuals, cruising along looking at an island that is filled with dinosaurs. That's a dream for most fans. We finally get our first look at Ben Hildebrand and Eric Kirby. Here you go, my friend. Make sure you get as close as you can. I'll give you something extra if you make it a good trip. <laughs> I'm gonna get you close, my friend, but not too close, eh? You don't wanna be eaten. <laughs> you ready, amigo? Before you know it, they're parasailing, and with any opening to a Jurassic film, things will quickly go wrong. Suddenly, the boat crew has vanished. The roofing of the boat is slashed and bloody with no clear sign of what happened. What happened to them? I don't know. Oh my god. We're gonna crash! Alright, all right. no we're not. I'm we're gonna, gonna crash! I'm gonna take this loose! Let go of the rope! Let go of the rope! The two detach from the cable and they are sent sailing along into a world of monsters. I wasn't initially impressed with this opening when I first saw the film, but I've definitely come to appreciate it more, especially since the release of Jurassic World. I went into that film with incredibly high expectations for an opening that would help bridge the gap between 2001 and 2015, and instead we had what I consider to be the weakest opening scene of the whole franchise. It's easy to look back at JP3 and see issues with the parasailing accident. For me, it's the green screen profile shots that absolutely do not match with the rest of the scene or the overall quality of the film visually. This is something that bothered me as a kid and I was always confused how these shots look so different because overall, I really like the look of JP3 and I firmly believe that DP Shelley Johnson did an incredible job. Along with those shots, I always wondered what exactly happened to the boat crew. Luckily, I was able to catch up with some of the cast and crew to discuss the opening scene. Dave, as one of the storyboard artists, do you recall what the opening scene of the film originally was? As I recall, there was kind of a, a contest, right, for <laughs> amongst, I forget who told us about it, but, but for an opening of the show. Uh, the producers actually, before the new writers came on, said, hey, if anybody... If anybody has an idea for the opening of this film, we're going to have a contest and and we'll offer a you know some cash prize for that. So some of us took the opportunity to to you know write our own versions and submit them. But um, what eventually happened is they found a writing team who came in and and completed that. So that was one thing is that we we're we had the opportunity to kind of world build a bit, 
before the story was completely locked in. And, and that gives us a little bit of latitude, but also help, you know, helps us to, to engage in the story. Did the art department help in the brainstorming of this? I wrote something that I, at the time, as I recall it, um, there were uh, some some fairly ambitious uh, adventurists who were using pretty high-tech hot air balloons for travel and, and speed, and they do so with with pot instead of the kind of an open air, you know, hot air balloon, it was a, it was more of a capsule and um, sort of experimentation. And so I had, I had had some idea of doing something like that. That was a little more high tech that landed on the Island. And um, just coincidentally, a very good friend of mine who wasn't working on the film, but is one of the top storyboard artists in Hollywood. He's and still is today. He's amazing. Uh, Phil Keller I had dinner with him and um, we lived pretty close by. And the next morning he called up and he said, Hey, stop on by for coffee. He had storyboarded my whole sequence and as, as professionally as anybody could ever. And so that's the one that I turned into the producers, uh, Larry Franco and, and they liked it and gave me good feedback, but that was coincidentally too the day that they hired on a new re- uh, writing team and as is totally appropriate, the writing team had had really uh, the latitude and the the you know they they uh, were given and and rightfully so the space to create their own story and that's the story that and I think it was the right one I think mine was mine was a little a little uh, high tech and and maybe uh, not quite right for the for the for the overall story but. Do you still have any of that art? I will. I will tell you this: they exist somewhere. I have it along with what I wrote. I don't know. I mean, literally, I've got a storage unit. I probably haven't seen the backside of in, you know, six years. But I know that I didn't throw it out. Throw them out. I just it would be a a, a task to unearth them. Gabriel Hardman, you were also one of the storyboard artists on the film. Did you contribute anything to the opening scene? I mean, the, my biggest memory of anything that I contributed to this movie was that when they, there, there was never any kind of coherent reason for the kid to get lost on the island. That it, you know, the, the opening teaser was, uh, it, it was all just kind of happening by chance. And I remember at some point, I've always been a very story-oriented person, and uh, I remember I had just read this uh, David Mamet book on film directing, which is a is actually a very very good book, more so for understanding how stories work than, they, than it is for uh, directing. But I I remember at the time going, why isn't a dinosaur responsible for this kid getting <laughs> getting lost on the island? Why why is this just happening randomly? And, uh, you know, and everybody was like, kind of like, oh, yeah, why, 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 is, why isn't it like that? And then me and Dave Lowry talked to Joe about it. And I'm sure nobody else remembers this. It just stuck out to me because, of, you know, because I was relatively new to all this stuff. And uh, we talked to Joe about it. And Joe was like, well, come up with something. And so uh, me and Dave Lowry sat down and I, I was like, well, we have flying dinosaurs. Have one of them attack the thing. <laughs> you don't have one of them have something to do with it. And um, uh, and so this was when they were already on location. They were already like in Hawaii. 
And uh, Dave and I just wrote up a version of the opening and said it to him. And they were like, yeah, maybe we should do this. <laughs> and, and like, I honestly don't even, don't even remember exactly how the opening teaser ended up working in the, the final film. But, uh, but it, that was, that was not a, a, a completely odd scenario for how things have gone throughout the rest of my film career. I, I'm very frequently the person who's like, why aren't we doing this one thing? Mark Harlick, thank you so much for taking the time to chat, JP3. You played the possibly lovable and yet quickly dead Ben Hildebrand. Did you audition for this role? I did, yes. Yes. Uh, uh, it, wasn't, uh, it wasn't the kind of audition where you uh, learn lines and pretend to be the character. Uh, I just had a long meeting with uh, Joe Johnston. Uh, I, I believe the casting director was a... Uh, um, a famous casting director, Vicki Thomas. And um, she brought the two of us together and we just chatted for a few minutes. And uh, he offered me the role there in the room. So uh, so the casting director said, well, that's that. Uh, see you in Honolulu. Even though you played the boyfriend of Taylioni's character, you really only had a brief scene with her on the beach. Did you get any time leading up to that to get to know her? Was that something the director pushed for? I know it's such a minimal, small scene that it probably didn't require much chemistry for that. Uh, uh, never saw her uh, during my filming. Although she was uh, working on the same day as I was, there were two shoot teams going at the same time, and she was over at the fancy one. <laughs> well, that's amazing. I mean, I, I guess I, I've seen the movie, you know, a hundred times. I guess I never paid attention when... There's a part in the movie where they play the camera that they found and they show you yeah. on the beach with a Frisbee. And in my yeah. mind, I guess I never noticed that they didn't show Taylioni. There's an implication in that in that scene that we're all out there together, but she's the one holding the camera. So right. you, wouldn't, yeah, that's... you wouldn't you wouldn't see her on the uh, on the homemade video camera. Uh, uh, in fact, that that homemade video camera was my uh was an actual uh, handheld video camera um, that they used to to uh, to film those those scenes that were shot on the video camera, and uh, it, it was the uh, the source of my uh, film directorial debut. Really? Um, <laughs> yes, we were we were working on the the scene where uh, I was coaxing her son to climb down from the tree we'd gotten caught in. And so uh, Joe had two units running that day, and one was us filming that scene of the boy climbing down out of the tree. And so he turns to me and he says, uh, uh, have you ever dreamed of being a director? And I said, what are you talking about? He said, you want to film this scene? Wow. And I said, what are, you, what are you talking about? He said, look, we have a scheduling conflict. Uh, I've got to go over to the other set and uh, direct uh, Tia Leone and and her uh, robot dinosaur. Uh, so uh, you shoot this um, footage. You be in charge of shooting this footage, just like you would shoot it if you were trapped in the tree and you were shooting footage. Uh, so I, I said, yeah, okay, give me the camera. So, uh, so I'm there with 
a, a skeleton crew. Um, no, that was a pun, but I didn't mean it. <laughs> uh, and so I, I shot that scene, me, myself, uh, and I received no credit for it. Oh, man. That's pretty cool, though. So I know you're also a writer. Was there ever a time on set where you were asked to create dialogue or you know script ideas? This scene had no, it had no dialogue written in it whatsoever, and so uh, I don't remember exactly what the boy and I said to each other. But uh, it, but it was all entirely improvised, and and uh, and I think that Joe not only didn't care what it was that we said, but. Uh, but that he wanted it to be as uh, as unscripted as possible, so that it would sound uh, spontaneous and genuine. So you know, maybe it had been his plan all along to leave me with the camera and run off, and you know, maybe he was hiding behind a, a <laughs> sound truck or something uh, while we were doing it. But that that was unscripted. It was just in the in the uh, as I remember in the film script, it's just the action is just described. Do people ever stop you because they recognize you as being in JP3? I will say that appearing in Jurassic Park 3 did bring me one week of nearly immeasurable fame in India. Really? Yes. Shall I tell you about that? Oh, yeah, definitely. During the time when I was uh, uh, an active student of yoga, and I'm still an active yoga practitioner trying to keep myself uh, alive as my son grows up, um, I was I went to India uh, to a yoga school, and um, I stayed in a hotel in uh, Pune, India, for a month while I was taking classes at this very famous yoga school. And while I was there, um, Jurassic Park Three had an opening in one of the local cineplexes, which happened to be. Uh, brand new in the most westernized new fresh westernized shopping mall that was built in Pune. it was the first shopping mall first western style shopping mall uh with this big sort of um i don't know what brand it was but it was a it was a this big cineplex and it was the place to go in Pune. somebody uh in my yoga school discovered that I was, uh, that I had a part in Jurassic Park three and never mind that I had the smallest part of anybody in Jurassic Park three. The fact that I was in Jurassic Park three made me a local celebrity. And, uh, uh, for about a week I had people following me around. Uh, they were, they were, uh, asking for my, my, my photograph and my autograph and the room where we did our yoga practice, the, the, all of the practitioners would stand around and, and uh, watch me do my yoga practice, uh, <laughs> watch this famous Hollywood actor wow. who's uh, in a movie that's just opening up at the mall, the mall. Um, and uh, it, it sort of culminated in uh, a, somebody who was involved in local events uh, invited me to come, come judge a beauty contest, which it was either a beauty or a talent contest. Now really? I can't remember. I think, I think it was a beauty contest. Uh, uh, come judge a local beauty contest. And I said, you've got to be <laughs> kidding me. No, you're famous. You're in Jurassic Park 3. So uh, so floating on the wings of my fame, I was, uh, I, I was taken down to this 
this uh, plaza where uh, I was led out on, introduced, led out onto a balcony, and and uh, there were cheers and applause, and the lights were in my eyes, and I realized that the beauty pageant was about half over. And I said, I can't judge this beauty contest because I haven't See, I'm not going to be able to see everybody. And and uh, the fellow who was with me says, it doesn't matter. Just pick someone. They, they will love it. And, <laughs> and, and so I, 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 I watched to the end and, and um, I, picked, <laughs> I picked somebody and they were they were led forward and given a tiara and, and, a, and a, a cloak draped around them. And I just felt so bad for all of the the. the people who went before this person that, that I hadn't seen, but you know, that judgment had to be rendered by the star of Jurassic Park 3. That's an incredible story. That's pretty good. So, you know, when you look back at JP3, what does the film mean to you? Jurassic Park was, uh, was a meal ticket and a, and a swell trip to Honolulu, um, except for the, uh, the day of filming that I spent below decks, uh, trying not to throw up. <laughs> so you spent one day where they just didn't film at all, but you were on the boat the whole time, like waiting. An entire work day, waiting really? for the waves to calm down. And uh, so while we were waiting, they were filming uh, just footage of the cliffs of Molokai to use um, <laughs> as, a, as a green screen background. Okay. And, and uh, they, they, the, the, Waves were so violent on this on this pontoon raft that they actually had to helicopter two of the camera crew off the pontoon raft because they were so seasick they couldn't uh, they couldn't stand up any longer. Oh yeah, well I was the probably the the sickest because uh, I don't do good on the boats anyway. And uh, we went out to do the opening, and a lot of it was uh, off the coast of Molokai, so it's in the you have to get across a heavy channel of waves and everything, and then the coast is not the uh, smoothest as far as the the rolling uh, sea. So you know we were on the boat for days, and you're, you when you're out there and you're breathing the diesel fumes of the exhaust from the boat, and you're bobbing all day long, and you're trying to eat breakfast, lunch, and dinner while you're bobbing, and you're trying to work. For me, the opening sequence in Hawaii was the most challenging for me personally. Not because it was the hardest scene or the most demanding of like how to figure out how to shoot it or the continuity of it. It's because physically I have an intolerance for boats on the ocean. And I was really worried about it, but they had us decked out with everything possible to keep us from getting seasick 24 hours before and that we were flying in little tiny private planes from Oahu to the island of Molokai to get us to the this huge boat that then we took off in this boat and went around that island for an hour dropped anchor in an offshore uh, probably in 15 to 20 foot swells. I, I don't really remember. I just know it was bad. And by the time we did that, I thought I was going to be okay, but I was not okay. I got so sick. They were pouring buckets of water over my head as I was hanging over the raft. They eventually, not just me, they gave me a shot. They did everything they could. And eventually the medic just 
sent me and another crew member, put us into a dinghy. They dinghied us to shore and a helicopter came and picked us up because <laughs> we were too sick. We could not make it. And so I went to, you know, the helicopter landed at the little Malachi airport and it was kind of an open air, tiny, 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 just like an airstrip and a little office. Right. And then park benches along lining around the outside. I found myself on one park bench and I just laid there and slept and, and got my, my ground legs back. Right. And the other crew member did the same thing on another park bench. And there were several days of that. And I, I, they asked me if I wanted to try it again, and I couldn't. I just I couldn't do it. You know, so everybody had to be, in order for it to work, you needed everybody's participation. And when I got so sick, I had to go to the shore to lie down. Well, then I had to rotate with the person who was on shore that their job was when the helicopters would land, we had big 55 gallon drums of fuel and you were the gas station basically and you they would land and you would run out and you would hand crank the fuel and fill up the helicopters and they could take off so uh for several hours i just laid on the shore uh, at the landing pad and waited till the helicopter land i'd quit barfing i'd get up i would crank the gasoline it would take off i'd lay back down i knew i was never going to be okay so i did it by um walkie talkie just kind of logging for the editor not one of my proudest moments for sure <laughs> not at all it's like awful that I was that sick but I just have that weakness in my body I mentioned this previously on the first viewing of the film I knew pretty quickly this film would be different than others there's a couple shots in the opening scene that I still find a bit jarring I spoke to Brad Jost the host of the Jurassic Park podcast about his views on the opening of JP3 I'm Brad Jost. I, I do host the Jurassic Park podcast and Jurassic Park 3 has been like, it's that one movie that that everybody goes to and talks about like whether they absolutely love this one or just flat out dislike it, like beyond repair. Um, for me, actually even before I saw the movie, I remember watching, I was watching TV like the Tonight Show or something, Jay Leno or whoever was on there. And one of the actors was on there. And then they were talking about the movie and played a clip from the movie. And when I saw that clip, I was like, hmm, um, I don't know. I'm not too sure. (laughs) Because I've I, I was I've been a you know I was a huge fan you know for that that whole time I was a huge fan of Jurassic Park, um and and the toys and then the Lost World and and the, and those toys and and everything surrounding those, um the the scores and everything. So when when that clip came out, I was like, oh oh boy, this looks a little different. Something looks wrong here. <laughs> so I feel like my viewpoint was a little like tarnished from the start. Like so. I remember back in 2001 when it came out, I my cousin like that I I never see was over my house one week or weekend or something and we we went up to the big movie theater, drove out there and I was so excited to see it still even though I was a little you know it was a little tainted from that clip that I saw. I was like um this movie is weird right off the bat. It just felt something felt off. I I think it was like a mix of the music the title card, the, the, the effects that were being used and and that stuff literally from moment one, something felt off. And you know, that, that score does that, like that, but it like, does it, the the last note is a little different and it just sounds 
wrong. So I was like, what's happening? What's going on? Um, and then you move into like that parasailing bit. And and I was like, okay, this this is strange too. <laughs> that it, 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 you know, whatever they're using, whether it was the green screen or blue screen or whatever, it, it just, it felt, it felt like that. You know, you couldn't really see past the fact that it was digital, digitally recreated. It wasn't a real uh, moment in time. Um, so that was like another thing that threw me off. Shelley, I think there are some incredible shots in this film. Is there anything in the film that you wish you could maybe go back and work on or redo? Well, the opening, I cringe a little bit at the opening. Um, the uh, There's some stuff uh, of them up on that parasail that I, did, I didn't shoot. Um, the I did all of the wide shots, and we were in the Molokai channel. It's so off of Molokai, that really treacherous ways. That, 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 that was really hairy and crazy um and that was near the beginning of us shooting we, we were in that in these horrible conditions the the seas there were, were incredibly rough and so we had all these stabilized heads and all that and everything we got in malachi i thought was really good when we came on stage we had to do the close-ups of uh, them up at the parasail of ben and, and trevor and the parasail and then we never uh we never got to it uh, we were doing other things, and so that ended up getting relegated to a reduced unit during post, and I was already on another movie by that point, and because uh, I got hired to do The Last Castle for, for Amblin right after um, this, and so I couldn't do that, and so another guy came in and did it, and I don't like the way it looks. It, it, um, they kind of lit it too much like Hollywood lighting, and, and it doesn't look like skylight. It doesn't look natural, and the shots are kind of too tight, and it, it looks odd, and, and uh, it looks kind of fake. For me, it's always been really that one shot that really stands out. It's a side view of the characters bouncing, the lighting, or something wasn't quite finalized with that. Yeah, there's that. Yeah, it just looks fake. And I think that... The stuff that we did with the parasail in the Toronton Canyon, you know, I did all that stuff. Um, and I think that looks a little better because the camera's just moving around more. And whatever they did on that stuff in the opening, that was that's the only, that kind of cringe at that stuff. Um, just because it's, it, um, it just doesn't really ring as being true, as being, you know, real at all. Is this a common thing that happens? It's got to be tough to work on a film and then have some shots that you had almost nothing to do with kind of affect your overall intended look? Well, it happens, yeah, it does happen with second units quite a lot. Um, it, it's just a natural thing. It's something that happens in the business. And, um, you know, the a second unit, you know, you can, you can only tell them so much. It's, at some point, you sort of have to trust their expertise. You know, one of the things that I told them, you know, that, that we, because we had already shot by that point all of the stuff on the Pteranodon Canyon with, when uh, Trevor and, and uh, Alessandro are up on the parasail and they're flying around and he drops Trevor into the water. And, and uh, um, what we had to do was keep the camera moving. You know, it's, uh, it's obviously all on blue screen and he's hanging from a rig and he's just hanging there like, a, like he's hanging from a clothesline. I mean, there's, there's not a lot of movement in him as a little bit, but, but all the movement has to come from the camera. So the camera has to be dutching and swinging and going in and out. Basically, no axis can be locked at any time. You know, it all has to be loose. And uh, so what they did, I, so I would tell the, you know, whatever the second unit DP who did that, you know, there, were, there was no other second unit other than that one sequence, really. Um, I think there's a shot of Alessandro 
one of the shots of Alessandro in the water is he's getting kind of swept down the river. That's a second unit shot, and there's one where they're climbing out of the banyan tree um, in the, the morning after they sleep in it. That's a, that's another shot. Um, and then this this parasail sequence. I think those were the only shots that a, a second unit ever did. Other than that, we were our own second unit. We shot every, you know, Joe supervised every single shot in the movie. And um, for some reason, they either didn't have the equipment or something went wrong with this parasail sequence. But it, it bothers me because it's scene one. And, uh, you know, my... My rule is you don't mess with scene one. Scene one, you you really go you go for it. You allow enough time. You make it right because that's what hooks the audience. And and you, scene one has to be right. And when that stuff came up in scene one, <laughs> I was I was a bit disappointed. You know, because I, I, I knew we could do better, and and uh, we didn't have a chance to kind of get in there and redo. I think I even brought up, yeah, we should really redo this stuff. It's not. But the, by that point, they couldn't get the ad. It was all actors and stuff. You can't you can't just can't just do that so it's not so much a mystery as it is really just a fun thing to kind of debate but do you recall what specifically killed the boat crew as was told to you uh uh well some kind of flying dinosaur you know maybe not a pteranodon but a pterodactyl or something something like that um uh you know the pteranodon thing i was assuming all along that the pteranodons couldn't get out until you know the, the cage was left open um, but that maybe smaller ones could. You know, there were breaks in that, in the, uh, in that uh, aviary. Um, so maybe there were some smaller ones, but th that was sort of ones that were so small they couldn't migrate off the island, but they could feed and do some damage. And so that was my thought was, you know, the, the boat sails into the fog and that's where they wait and they, you know, they strike. Um, uh, yeah, that was, that was the discussion you know, from, from my end of it. And I guess, you know, that, that, you know, Joe wanted to keep it very, very cryptic, of course, not show any of that attack, um, but show it more from the character's point of view, which is, you know, the, 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 the boat sails into fog and comes out a bloody mess. It's like, oh my God, <laughs> what just happened down there? You know, um, so are, are, I suppose there'd be a, a, a level of, of confusion from the audience point of view. Um, but I think what Joe was asking was to, you know, just suspend reality for that one moment, um, you know, for the sake of providing a, a mystery on the, on the island that was going to be paid off later. And I think that the, you know, the Pteranodon uh, cage and all that was sort of the payoff for all that. So it does completely make sense. It's the Pteranodons. And really, there shouldn't be much debate over it. It's just one of those things as a kid, you know, it frustrated me not knowing, but now I view it as necessary to keep some sort of mystery about the terror these characters would soon encounter. But if there was someone that could say for sure, without a doubt, what it was that killed the boat crew, it would be the editor, Robert Dalva. It's the, the flying... Uh, there's a shadow. Is there? Really? Yeah. Yeah. There's a shadow in one of the boat shots. Interesting. See, I mean, that's something where it seemed like, obviously, you're thinking pteranodons, but... It's fair. It's, it's very subtle. It's quick. So it's one of the down shots of the boat. Okay. So that was... And I think, and I think there may be a sense of something flying over them. Interesting. Yeah. It's, but it's very subtle. I mean, we didn't... You know, we wanted it to be mysterious. You know, we didn't want it to be clear. Yeah. And I, I would say uh, my memory is that that was, one, was actually one of the harder scenes to cut. You know, to make it work. Okay. 
Realizing that certain shots weren't done by Shelly or that the crew was suffering from seasickness all day, that all plays into the final film. Sure, it's easy to say it shouldn't matter because we can only see what is shown on screen. But the reality is JP3 was definitely handled differently by the studio than the previous two films. And as we continue to speak to more of the cast and crew about the challenges they faced, I find myself again wondering, what would this film be like if lesser experienced people were in charge? Joe Johnston and, and Shelley together on a movie, you, you just, you're in the best world you can be in, in filmmaking right there. You know, I mean, there might be other directors and other DPs that are, are great also, of course there are, but I'm just saying that this is one of the best worlds. It, it, you know, they, they didn't make it worse than it was. They made it better than it could be. And that's quite a statement on a huge movie like that. That was so stressful for everybody, you know, in terms of no script. So such a puzzle piece that you were putting together um, from visual effects and the animatronics and putting all that together and mixing and matching pieces from different sets and different locations and different stages and seeing that all all planned out and worked so well together editorial being post-production editorial keeping up with us and being so on top of it there's something very comfortable that everybody's working really hard to do something and make it work you know trying their best to make it work and if you're with people like that you just can't go wrong you know when you have those people you're going to have the best shot at it on the next episode so you survived on an island with dinosaurs for eight weeks inside of a water cooler do you think your character intentionally left your wannabe stepfather ben hildebrand trapped in a tree to die um <laughs> that's a really funny question though it's like see you ben <laughs> that's that's what you get for dating my mom Pick your head.